welcome, welcome, welcome to Reignite Yourself, the Visual Effects Society's and Quebec Film and Television Council's mental health series featuring conversations with professionals from the entertainment industry and mental health specialists. I am Philip Wolf, co-chair of the VS Health and Wellbeing Committee and will be your host. The series has been created to empower yourselves, ourselves, the visual effects and animation professionals with tools, insights and facts about our mental health. We will talk about our brains, what science can tell us about our emotions, and how our bodies and mind work as one. Our chapters will focus on mental health at work and will also provide you with useful tools for everyday life. Now more than ever, it is the time to destigmatize mental health conversations so we can all feel safe to be open and find support. Throughout this series, we will have the honor of welcoming five renowned guests from our industry who have generously accepted to come and start this conversation with us. Caitlin Young, visual effects supervisor at Alpha Studios and on Forbes 30 under 30 list to watch in Hollywood. Chris White, visual effects supervisor at Weta Digital, who has worked on movies such as Planet of the Apes, King Kong, The Hobbit, and is currently busy on the next Avatar. John Dykstra, Visual Effects Supervisor, recipient of three Academy Awards and co-founder of Industrial Light and Magic. Monica Lakokatis, producer and CEO at Frogbot Films. She served as associate producer at Walt Disney Animation on Record Ralph and Zootopia, then made her live-action debut with Netflix The Christmas Chronicles. Mark Osborn, director of Kung Fu Panda and Liberty Pins, film producer, screenwriter and animator. What an amazing lineup. But before further introducing today's guests, I would like to welcome our three mental health professionals who will accompany us throughout this journey. Dr. Melanie Bilbo, who is a psychiatrist at the Centre Hospitalier de l'Université de Montréal, in short, CHUM. She completed her Bachelor of Science in Neuroscience, Medical Degree and Psychiatry Residency at McGill University, and her Fellowship in Consultation Liaison Psychiatry at Mont Sinai Hospital in New York. She specializes in mind-body interactions with a particular interest in building resilience and mental well-being. Dr. Drea Mendy, who is a licensed clinical psychologist, professor and media consultant. She received her undergraduate degree from Cornell University and her PhD in psychology from UCSD. Dr. Mendy currently serves as the acting director of the UCLA Student Resilience Center where she works with college students in the areas of empathy and resilience building, crisis response, and suicide prevention. Dr. Lerdemendi is a TEDx UCLA speaker and recently delivered a TED session on resilience and media during a pandemic as part of a special COVID-19 series called Conversations with TED. Her work on the intersections of pop culture and psychological science have been featured in The Atlantic, The Guardian, Vanity Fair, and The Los Angeles Times. And last but not least, Camille Charbonneau, who is a mental health performance consultant with a master's degree in performance and sport psychology. For the last six years, she has been helping high performers see the value that mental skills training has on performance in everyday life. Through teaching tools and strategies based on sport psychology research, she helps people feel confident and focused when it matters the most. Camille has worked with musicians, athletes, coaches, children and business leaders. Her experience as an athlete, educator and personal trainer make her a consultant with a wide variety of skills. 
With a holistic approach, she helps people build lifelong skills that ultimately help cultivate more balance, focus, and happiness. Melanie, Drea, and Camille, thank you so much for being part of this initiative and sharing your knowledge with our audience. We are so happy to have you here with us today. One last thing before we get started. As part of the Release Your Creativity project, we would like to thank our supporters, without whom the series would not have been possible. The City of Montreal, as well as the studios supporting the project. Caribara, Montreal, DNEC, Framestore, Method Studios, Real Effects, and Technicolor. Thank you. This series is available on the visualeffectsociety.com, vfxmontreal.com, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcast. But now, let's get into it. Today, we're going to talk about keeping a blue head, staying calm and focused in high-pressure situations with our special guest, Chris White. Chris is a visual effects supervisor with over 25 years of industry experience. His work has been recognized with multiple awards from the Visual Effects Society, along with Academy Award, BAFTA, and Emmy nominations. Some of his more notable work includes Twister, Star Wars Episode One, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, King Kong, Avatar, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and the Umbrella Academy. He's currently working on the Avatar sequels at Weta Digital in New Zealand. Enthusiastic about giving back to the next generation of artists, he enjoys guest lecturing at universities and conferences. As an active member of Inclusion Effects, Chris offers young people from traditional underrepresented groups mentoring and career guidance in visual effects. Chris, welcome and thank you for being here with us today. But now let's talk about pressure, the difference of perceived pressure versus real pressure, what causes it, and how we try to manage it. How do we deal with the, the pressure that we have um, in, the, in the industry? Um, because we have these kind of external pressures and then we have these internal pressures. I guess part of um, this discussion is like, what are the techniques that we kind of do, I mean, you know, that we have to deal with them? And for me, I guess personally, it's, um, how much is looking at how much of the pressure has to do with miscommunication you know like is there certain circumstances that it's a miscommunication between my interaction with the client or with the artist that could be um you know that, that could be worked out you know is there is there more communication that we can have to go into what those different topics are that could or misinterpretation of of something that could be adding to what we're feeling is is the pressure i think that's one of the the first things that i that I start with. There is something that's talking about the external versus the internal. When dealing with stress, there's something that's called the two dart theory, um, where the first dart is the actual stress and the second dart is the way we perceive the stress. So I think that sometimes when we're in very high pressure situations, those two can become confounded. It becomes very hard to know, is this just because you know, I'm in a very stressful job and there is, there is the work pressure, or am I also misinterpreting part of what's going on as well? that it becomes harder, let's say, to address the issues and to set appropriate boundaries as well, too. So I think taking a step back and reflecting, okay, what what in this can I do? What part of this can I actually control? And what part of this is be out of my control, but how can I actually deal with the parts that, that I can't actually control in a way that makes me feel like I have more of a sense of agency within the job itself can be helpful in those situations. And then I guess what question with the misinterpretation, does it... Do you think it helps to think of past misinterpretations, you know, that maybe 
you know, like, oh, I was in this situation previously and I might have misinterpreted that. Um, could I be doing this again? Or I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but it's, it's like learning from, from those previous times where like, well, I might have, you know, this previous time I misinterpreted and I might have overreacted or I might have thought about this incorrectly. Could this be happening again? Is that something that could be a way of looking at it? Definitely. And that's a fantastic question, actually, because I think we, we each have our own patterns that we tend to fall into. And a lot of these are based even from, from childhood, from birth, based on the interactions we had with the people around us. And part of this is also just our personality of our way of dealing with things, too. So I think many of us do tend to find ourselves in similar situations over and over again, or similar types of conflicts or issues with friends or with family. So having the ability to reflect back and say, you know what, last time when this happened, this was my reaction how would I have liked to act differently or how, how is this similar or dissimilar to that reaction really leaves a lot of room for growth. The important part here is really to give yourself some of the space for actual reflection. So doing some of the techniques for self-care, for wellness, um, and also sometimes having an objective person to speak to, whether that's a friend or family who knows you well, where you can sort of bounce the idea off of it. Is, is this me or is it the other person? Is this, you know, am I overreacting? Is this okay? Um, and in some cases, also having a therapist, a psychologist to talk to, another mental health provider can also be very helpful when sometimes someone who's close to us sometimes feels a bit too close or we don't always feel comfortable sharing, depending on what it is. Um, sometimes a colleague can be very helpful, too, if they've worked with a similar people just to know, OK, is this, you know, is it just me or is it, you know, are other people having this, too? And then finding a way once you feel like you're actually you, you're ready to really approach it, to try to approach it in a way that you feel like would be most most beneficial. So what would you also like to get out of it? How do you come at it in a way that's assertive but not aggressive? Um, in a way that you actually can have the outcome that, that's desired as well? Because uh, understandably, even if you have that capacity to reflect, it's it's then also how to how to put that into practice, which is sometimes very difficult. It can be done. Yeah, you mentioned the the part of having a colleague. I've always found that having that, being a visual effects supervisor, it's you and the producer kind of form this relationship. And I've always found it really helpful to lean on the producer, you know, after we may have a call or different things to get their interpretation of, of those events as well. You know, that you, you kind of have that, that partner in the, the project that, that um, can help give you, you know, another person to talk to another person to, to get their, their interpretation. Dr. Malami, you mentioned reflection and um, just the skill of being self-aware is, is challenging, right? And it, it's a skill that must be developed over time and um, continued develop is ne development is necessary as well. And for most people, I think it can be a habit or automatic to reflect. But for others, it's it can look like journaling um, or just getting thoughts down on paper, right? Just to start that reflection process. Um, I am a huge advocate of meditation and mindfulness just as a tool to help develop that self-awareness to start being aware of, of thoughts that come up because a big part of the reflection process is being aware of the thoughts that come up versus being caught up in the thought, right? So in a meditation practice or a mindfulness practice, um, which I do myself and I advocate to all the, the athletes that I work with is just being able to sit there and notice when you're distracted, notice when your thoughts um, go somewhere else and accept that without non-judgment and be, non, not, sorry, <laughs> The idea of mindfulness and meditation is being able to sit there and notice your thoughts, noticing when your, when your mind wanders. And that's what the brain does, right? So continuously practicing, coming back to the moment and 
just really being able to let go of certain thoughts and being able to take that step back to take a breath and and react the way we want and and feel in control again so as you're saying reflection is really important but there are other ways there are many ways to practice that so journaling the meditation mindfulness speaking with a therapist or a colleague um dr dre or dr melanie are there any other strategies that we can use to develop our self-awareness skills when i think about these high pressure situations and especially the types of projects that create an ebb and flow or, or spikes of of stress and recovery i think it's always important to have some emergency tools as well um, we all have had those moments where we just want to scream at somebody or we just want to you know throw everything on our desk into the garbage <laughs> those are all normal feelings um, a couple of things i often tell uh, the professionals that I work with, you know, one is that always just remind yourself that stress is a product of your sociocultural ecosystem, right? That you're feeling it so intensely in your body, but there are external reasons that um, contribute to those feelings. Nonetheless, often we're experiencing stress through a lens. And so that lens is so different with everybody, but what can be universal is just that that micro moment of realizing i don't feel good i feel like dysregulated i feel upset at my desk i have an action figure of batman and he's holding a sign and the sign says halt at h-a-l-t and halt stands for hungry angry lonely or tired and those are sort of the the lenses that i think about Am I this irritable because I'm actually hungry? Like I need to nourish my body and eat. Um, am I this upset because I'm actually very angry at someone, at something, at, at an event? Um, it's hard not to be angry right now, uh, especially with everything going on in the world. And then, um, you know, lonely. Am I feeling like I haven't connected with somebody? Do I feel really alone in this situation? And then of course, tired. Have I not rested? Have I, I, maybe I need to recover. And just that acronym that Batman reminds me of just helps me realize, okay, I need to just pause and realize where this is coming from before I take action. Because I know that if I don't do that, that action may contribute to negative experiences. I might yell at somebody. I might, you know, bark at a colleague. I might, um, engage in negative coping, like binging or drinking or, or what have you. So there's a lot of reasons that there's just that micro moment of reflection is, is so important. The, uh, the idea of keeping a blue head, um, I got it from the All Blacks who are very successful, one of the success, most successful team in rugby. And Basically, keeping a blue head means controlling your attention to avoid poor decision making in high pressure situations. And um, on the reverse, a red head is um, a state where you're tight and anxious and panicked and desperate. So when we're in a blue state, basically, we're in the moment, we're present, we're focused, we're calm, and we're more accurate and loose. So, Chris, do you have any um, strategies such like Dr. Jaya mentioned with HALT that you can share 
that keep you in a blue head when you're in high performance situations? Um, I think the one that comes to mind is, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. It's kind of like taking stock of the situation. Like I have a friend, a really good friend I've known for a long time who works in an emergency room and we'll be chatting back and forth, you know, throughout the day or whatever. And I'll, I'll speak to him and he'll tell me about what he's, his day has been like. And then I'll look at what I might be getting stressed at and thinking, well, it's, you know, it's, I want to do a great job and I want it to look amazing, but it's not the end of the world if um, we don't have, if we have to do another iteration on this effect or this, this type of thing that, you know, there's different, you know, there's taking stock of what is the situation? Is it not the end of the world? Is it, um, you know, is there, you know, people doing with other high stress and our job is definitely very high stress, um, but also gauging, you know, how, um, how critical this particular thing is. I'm not sure if I'm explaining it right, but not over inflating what, this particular problem is you definitely want to solve it. You want to make it look great, but, but not taking it to a level where, you know, people are going to die if this, if this, <laughs> this foot is not in the correct place or something, if that makes sense for like an, an animation. Um, so it's, some of it might be just taking stock of, of that and then using that to say, okay, you know, no one's going to die from this. All right, now let's sit down and, and be calm and let's see what we can work through it. And then also leveraging, you know, the, the people in the team and trying to see like, what can they contribute? What kind of ideas do they have? You know, I've always gone back to this thing that someone in the room probably has a good answer for. And if you can create some kind of culture where they feel like they're okay to speak up, then a lot of these problems can be, can be solved or resolved by the contribution of the team. But it has to be that kind of environment where they feel like they can do that. What would you say can help build that type of environment? And that takes time, right? So can you yeah, share some ideas? Yeah, yeah. so that's, it does take time. I think it's, um, and it's funny you actually say time because that's probably a big part of it. You know, how do we organize our time so that, um, so that, that there is a time for that, that casual conversation. There is time for people to offer ideas. We get so into this productive mode. And being that it's a creative industry, we actually need that time for people to be creative and play and try different ideas. But we quickly go to the mode of do this, do this, do this, do that. And, um, and it's trying to find those, those moments where we do halt and we actually spend some time to, to, um, to do that and then be able to create a room, like even the space itself in a, in a way that people feel like they, they can speak up. Um, I'm actually a believer that the actual room and the design of the room can actually have an impact on how, how people relate within it. You have some conference rooms, which I actually don't like working in because they're so big that people who don't feel um, good about speaking up in a very large room with a lot of people will tend to sit in the back where you can't see them, where you can't make eye contact. So I actually have a preference of the smaller rooms where people feel more free to speak up and um and just creates a you know a natural environment for that so that's that's one way i like to do it and the other thing um as a supervisor i try to do is i try to reserve sometime before dailies what i call pre-dailies where i can look at the work with just me and my producer and um and some of my other supervisors where we can just talk about the work before the artists come in you know give us some time to 
to look at it because there can be pressure on the supervisor that something pops up on the screen and within two or three seconds you have to give instructions or give some notes. And all problems are different. Some take a few minutes to figure out, some can take hours, you know, some can be immediate. And I think that we don't give enough time variation to allow for those different, pro those different problems and conditions. Yeah, those are some of the, some of the things that I've, I've started to, um, sorry, to, to, to realize. Um, I, I actually had a, um, I used to do a bit of, before I started doing a lot of public speaking, I would, it was, it was really hard for me. Like I was really nervous. I had, you know, trouble in these big spaces. And I, I gave a talk in Atlanta once and one of the, um, the moderator, when I first came in, he said, oh, come in like an hour early. And he said, let's just walk around the room. And we sat in all the different chairs of the room. We sat on the edge of the stage. Um, he said, wait till the people come in. And as they started to come in, he said, talk to the front row. And I was asking him about that. And he said, this is a technique. He said, a, a lot of nervousness, he believed, comes from being unfamiliar with the space. The space is actually very, um, that adds to your nervousness. And let's spend some time in the space. And then the people coming in the front row, let's talk to them casual because, um, because most likely they're, if they're there early, it's because they're, they're interested in the talk. They're excited. They're coming to the front row. And by the time you start speaking, you, um, you have a familiarity with them and you can look at them. And honestly, after that one talk, um, all my presentations became considerably easier. It was, and I do that every time I go in and, and take in the space and I'll just go sit in different seats. And it, it honestly, it really helps. I can totally connect with what you're saying. And sometimes I'll give uh, lectures or workshops to teams or, you know, a, a class at a, at a school that I've never met. And um, it's exactly what you're saying. It's the unknown, right? And mm -hmm. it's a way to mentally prepare ourselves just to go in a little earlier, chat with the people around and absolutely it works. <laughs> yeah, it does. But, yeah. It, it really does. Um, I, I don't remember the visual effects supervisor, but uh, recently put something out to LinkedIn where he had talked about different techniques that, that helps him. And part of that he mentioned was, you know, talking to the artists as they come in, you know, talking to them as they leave. And um, and it's something good also with production as well to, to take that into account because there's so much that they're trying to get through that um, say, you know, can we leave a little bit of time just for that casual conversation you know, at the beginning and at the end and, and have it be a, a, a less stressful environment by doing some of that. Do you find yourself using um, imagery or visualization at all to prepare for certain things? Um, for high pressure situations? Mm -hmm. um, I haven't in the past, but it's a good, it's actually a good idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, I probably, I probably should not have thinking about it. Yeah, it actually would be a good um we do have, when I had time, which I'd like to make more time of, you know, being in New Zealand, you have some pretty beautiful scenery. And I know a lot of people will just go at lunch and just take a walk around and, and kind of take some of that in. But imagery, um, yeah, I think that would be, that would be something, that'd be something good to do. But I think, yeah, it comes back to that, having that, you were talking about um, meditation, having that, allocating mm -hmm. that time to actually do that throughout your day. Um, and do you recommend that people take those breaks or schedule those in, or how do most people fit those into their right into their pressure? So specific, days? specifically <laughs> for new habits, I would suggest blocking in time for it. And mm -hmm. when it comes to meditation, um, it seems like 
everyone feels like it needs to be, you know, 30 minutes or this huge block of time. And the research is on, you know, 30 minutes, but I've seen changes in people who've meditated just for, you know, five minutes a few times uh, a week. And just scheduling in those five minutes might seem silly, but at least it keeps you accountable and it, it helps you follow through with it. So definitely scheduling in that time would be important until it becomes automatic, until it becomes a habit. And mm -hmm. same thing with the break, same thing with anything you need to do to um, disconnect or self-preserve. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's one question I have for you guys. There's something we were actually discussing uh, yesterday evening with some of the artists um, that someone had mentioned some of their best ideas come from when they're not working. You know, they might be taking a shower, they might be going for a run, but then they also said that this is a bit of a problem because it means their mind wants to think about work when they're not working. So how do they, you know, balance that, that their best ideas come from outside of work, but they also don't want to think about work when they're outside of work. <laughs> any, any suggestions on that? I think this comes to the idea of sort of work-life balance as well, that some people think, you know, I have to, okay, now I'm in work mode, now I'm in life mode, okay, I'm shutting it off, I'm, I'm no longer at work, I should be thinking about something else. Mm -hmm. But none of us really work this way. You know, our, our, everything is interconnected, everything from, you know, our, our childhoods, our histories, our friends, our family, our work, everything sort of bleeds together. I don't think any of us have really have clear, concrete silos of our lives. So. And that time is actually very, that can actually be very positive. The whole point is that downtime when you're doing something like exercising, going for a run, meditating, being outside, going for a walk. If Also, if you're in New Zealand, all the more reason to try to get outside if, if you're in that beautiful of a country. Um, but that time actually does let your brain into a different mode where you're more in a state where you can actually absorb these things, process things a little bit differently. Um, and that downtime, actually, there there have been studies showing that you actually could have these sort of revelations or problem solve mm -hmm. when you're actually in this downtime. Sleep is another very important mechanism for that, actually. So not getting enough sleep means that you're not you're not in enough REM cycle as well. So you're not getting enough rapid eye movement sleep, um, and the part of sleep where your brain almost looks like it's awake. And during that time is when people can actually solve more problems and restore and actually figure out things and and maybe view them from a different a different way. So I think for, for your colleagues who are discussing this as well, it's actually a, a very positive thing and all the more reason to, to spend more time doing those things they enjoy. They'll probably be better at work. work. They'll feel more rested at the end of it. Yeah. No, but they'll also they'll feel more rested and also work then I think might seem it, it becomes less of the sort of the idea of work, of the stress of work. It's more about, okay, this is something that I'm enjoying. It's, you know, there's a certain lightness that come, comes with it as well when you finally solve that problem outside of work even. When you get that sort of light bulb moment, okay, mm -hmm. I finally figured it out. That's sort of the, the joy moments that I think we all look for in our work as well. Yeah. And is there any recommendations on how to fold those times into the work day? I know there was some place I've worked at before that did have meditation and yoga stretching rooms to try and give some break area but they could unfortunately you could hear the colleagues outside the hall talking about work so it didn't work as well but yeah any I suggestions think as as cam was saying so scheduling it initially so there's two parts you're sort of asking should the work itself should it be built into the schedule i think but there, there's two aspects one is i think on an individual level scheduling it in a way that in a time that makes sense for us mm -hmm. um i do also think giving employees some some leeway sometimes can also be very helpful to say, you know, you have a little bit of time, some actual break time that you could take in it to have a culture where people actually are more likely to take it. Yeah. That that little bit of flexibility can also like also just create and foster more creativity as well, as opposed to saying, okay, now is the time when we're all going to go and relax and do yoga together. <laughs> that, that also is very helpful, but sometimes just saying, you know, this room is available to you. 
Um, and we encourage you, and sometimes also seeing the managers, the supervisors actually using that space, sometimes sends the message to everyone of this is important. We should all be doing this at some point too. So I think creating the space, as you're saying, you've spoken about space so many times, which I also really appreciate because I believe that too, that having the right sort of space encourages it, but also having people that believe in it and set that model for themselves can also be very helpful. And on an individual level, actually valuing it and penciling it in makes a big difference as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good point about the seeing the managers or supervisors set that example. That's that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You can make a big deal out of it too. Being like, okay, now I'm going to do my yoga or something. You know, like, yeah. Kids, yeah, just do really the rounds a, beforehand and leave the door open or something. So. Yeah, um, yeah. Also, it, yeah, doing the rounds. It just reminded me. I also had a really great producer in the past that she would. Um, you would see her doing the rounds, just checking in with people and and going around to different desks. And if it was late in the evening, like she would never make a straight line to the door. She was always like you know, checking in with people, making sure they were going home and, and those type of things. Um, so yeah, having that come from, from up above makes, makes a difference. Um, it's especially important to recognize the impact that managers and change leaders and, and folks who have, you know, you don't have to be a supervisor to, um, to have influence, right. In a community, in a professional community. And they often set the tone. They often, uh, either create the culture or uh, model how to challenge cultural elements and values that might be harmful or outdated or just you know un- unhealthy, frankly, for uh, for professionals who are um, being indoctrinated into the community. And and so, mm. I'm wondering, Chris, how how does that how have you seen this manifest in your work? just in terms of some of the more toxic elements in the profession and, and also how have you how have you found ways to resolve them and, and actually really turn things around in more positive mm-hmm. uh, strategies? Yeah, I think how it's, yeah, how does it manifest in the work? Um, you know, one thing I was thinking about is how has the industry evolved over the years? Um, and with part of that was, you know, like we talked about, there's ebbs and flows, but those ebbs and flows have have greatly reduced. There was a time where you did a show, you finished it, you had a wrap party, you did all those things, and then you slowly went into the next show. And then now the, the next show is immediately, immediately on the heels of that. Um, so like solutions for that, I mean, that's that's kind of a trickier thing because I keep harping on this time thing, but it it's so much of that that feeds into it. If an artist doesn't have the chance to to relax and have that downtime before they're into the next project. Um, and that can lead into, you know, um, just, just immediate, you know, not having that, that chance to, to, to process it or relax, um, that, that can add to it as well. So what can we do? I think about what can we do as an industry and what can we do as, as supervisors, um, and producers to try and help reduce that, that type of stress. I, I feel it's our obligation. Philip and I have talked about it a bit that um, in some ways to protect the crew from some of the stress that might be coming from the, the outside so that they can, they can um, try and reduce their stress as much as you can. It's, it's, you know, um, it's a difficult thing to control, but then that also helps in general. It helps your stress too, because if your, your crew is more relaxed then you will be, you will be more relaxed as well. And maybe that, that creates, helps create a whole cycle. Um, what do some of those practices look like? 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, you know, if, if, if you're having certain stresses that may be coming from the outside, may take a break and not translate that directly to the artist, you know, work through it. Like I said, that, that partnership with your producer or your coworker, work through it, you know, you guys together and then take that time and then go meet with the artist and try and come up with some solutions. I mean, you can, there's things that you could do in those, those little groups that, that could help it. But I also think part of it too is, um, is that we may be too quick to try and find these action points, you know, get quick, let's do this, let's do this, this, this will fix it, this will fix it. Taking that time to, to meet with and just, just go through the different ideas and discuss it and get some feedback. It's amazing sometimes that, um, the artists, like I said, may have, um, may have an answer there. They may say, oh, you know, the reason I, I think this might be broken because of this, they may be able to offer that up, but we don't create enough spaces for that casual conversation before jumping to what we need to do. Um, that, that I think could, could, is a big part of it as well. That's so important. The interaction, the commingling, just the um, bridging of perspectives. Yeah embracing diversity, embracing different ideas. Um, and I love that acknowledgement and acceptance of like, we may not know, we may not have the answer right now, but we're in this together. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's a really good point. Cause that's one, and it took me years as a supervisor to get to that point. Cause you feel an obligation to have that note immediately. As soon as it pops up on the screen, I'm supposed to give a note, you know, um, but as the years have gone by, I've kind of got to a point where, I was, where I'll say, you know what, I need some time with this. I'll have to get back to you. I'm going to go do some drawings. I'm going to sit and take a look at it. And, um, and just, I, I think that's, you know, getting to that level of saying, I, you know what, I don't necessarily have the answer at this point, but I, and having the confidence to say that. And I think in general, the artists appreciate it. They don't want to go back and do something that you've just thrown into the air and make them have to go through a bunch of different cycles because you haven't figured it out. So in general, like having that, in our, our workflow, I think it'd be beneficial to everyone. Um, and, in, and from the artist as well, that they can say, I, I actually don't know why it looks that way. I'm gonna, I'll go take a look and I'll find out and they should feel like it's, it's okay for them to, to say that. I'll get back to you about that. Let me go look and see. I mean, we deal a lot with computers and a lot of <laughs> strange, unpredictable things happen all the time. Yeah. That um, open communication really over time fosters Obviously, it fosters the teamwork and the creativity, but also fosters a sense of empathy amongst the team members as well. Mm -hmm. Let's say as opposed to getting a note saying, you know, you should change this, understanding, okay, why why do they want this change? How do I improve upon that? Or also yeah. as a supervisor or producer, just getting, let's say, feedback without actually knowing what's going on or then hearing, let's say, that maybe someone is not doing so well, but not having the context of it. It also makes it much harder to intervene, even if you want to. But I think really having a sense to, or also even just maybe not understanding what is the stress that's put on a, my producer, my supervisor, why are they, you know, I don't know, why is it taking them a little bit longer or they're reacting too quickly or really just not understanding the whole process of it. So I think having that sense of transparency as well can foster an idea of, okay, we're, we're all in this together. How do I put myself in his or her, or her shoes to really understand where this is coming from? which also I think in turns helps everyone grow to figure out, okay, how, how do I not do this again? How do I become better at my specific role? How do I become a, a better leader or also a better, a better artist overall too? And I think makes everyone just happier to come to work as well. If they mm -hmm. sort of know, okay, what is my role? What am I doing here? What am I contributing? You really feel like you're actually part of something much bigger than yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that, um, you know, that, that communication you talked about, like between the artists, um, it's something that I do feel like we need to get back to that. We've, we've tended to lose that over the years of, of one artist is their information's being sent to another or notes being sent to another without having that direct, direct talk. So you receive something from someone that you've never met or, you know, and you're working with these different files. So how do we as a, an industry continue that foster, you know, those, those teams and the we that you're speaking about and, um, and to not just have it something that's, that's come through the assembly line to you. Um, that's... We're talking a lot about, com about communication too. I can't help it, but in times of COVID, I think a lot of us has also been much more isolated. It's much harder to actually get that, that usual interaction that people might get just sitting next door to each other or something that there's, mm -hmm. there's, it's just, there's harder, there's more barriers to break than before. Have you noticed in your work that it, that things have changed because of in the last year or so because of COVID? Um, it's a little bit different for me because our COVID period was so small here in New Zealand. It's um, true. It's true. Yeah, we had a lockdown for maybe six weeks, but then there's still you know an element of work from home and work in the office and a bit of flexibility there. So it, it hasn't nearly been as impactful. But the one thing I'd say that is interesting from the um, the kind of video conferencing and team side is that there's a whole new thing that we have, even have to look at with that post this is um, there is, there has been some positive things of artists chatting with each other a bit more, you know, directly um, without, you know, having to all get into a meeting room and, and things like that. So there has been in some ways some, some good communication there, but there's also been the um, negative side where they're actually getting chats coming from everywhere. Now, so it's almost managing all these different these chats coming in. So there's like there's very positive things, but there's also I've been hearing people speak about my my chat thing is just is filling up. Um, so yeah, so I, I think it's it's a combination of of both, but also with the um, it'll be interesting to happen what happens with the work from home and how those translate into the future. Um, because I personally, it's given me a bit more time with, with my family and, and some more flexibility, having the ability to, to do that, um, which is a big part of it. I mean, I think that's one thing with our industry to, to we should also talk about is home life, family life, um, and all those things that, that, that get affected that add to this stress that we're talking about. But I, I also like the fact that you reflect on some of the positives of it. That in some ways, people, some people actually do feel more comfortable. So one's being home with your family can, yeah. is, is a very positive thing that I think many people have experienced. For others, it's more stressful to be home and not they're not able to work because there's just so much going on at home as well. Yeah. And whether they're also taking care of children and trying to work at the same time. Um, but also interesting, the communication that for some people, they may actually prefer to be chatting the whole day as opposed to, let's say, sitting in meetings, whereas other people would prefer to have just, let's say, a one meeting where we discuss everything and not have to deal with 100 chats. That it's yeah. interesting too how different personalities, different workflows, and different home lives also really have a major influence on on whether it's more stressful or or less stressful to to be at home. It's it's a really good point. I've been very lucky because we I had this old artist studio which I'm in now, which is just removed from the house. But I do know that people that were in the house working, it was a very different. You know, we were on the same project, but a very different feeling. They were they were super excited to get back into the into the office. Um, <laughs> Chris, you were talking about uh, the relationship you have with your producer or the relationship uh, people people mm -hmm. build uh, during these projects or have. Do you think that trust has something to do mm -hmm. with uh, a possibility to 
reduce pressure and and actually keeping a blue hat yeah i I do i mean i think trust is a big part of it um you know it's trust the artist with the supervisor but it's also with the supervisor and the producer with the artist as well um you know it's 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 like I, i was speaking about with our schedule is that sometimes we'll have morning dailies and then we'll have rounds and and the problems are bigger than what can happen within four or six hours before the artist has to show that iteration again like it can it can't actually be solved within that amount of time and I, I think we need to create spaces to understand that these problems will take days and that you trust the artists that they're gonna they go back and 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 be able to work on that without having a review within the next couple of hours um i i feel like that's a big part and it's a big part for morale you know if you if they if they have a sense of feeling of trust and the ability that they can bring their own selves and their own ideas to the to the project then that's that's going to help with reality uh, the reality of mor- morale you know that's going to bring a lot to it but that i guess that trust we have to look at building you know making sure that we build that with them um yeah and that's and that's that's also working with clients and and everything else as well establishing that early on is an is an important part um and if there's any recommendations i'm you know i'm always open to different techniques and things that could that could help with that or you know having the artists feel that they're they're trusted with it certainly it's bi-directional um this Mm -hmm. experience of trust and as you were talking about the opportunities you have to build dialogue, to literally have spaces of conversation and sharing. Um, I was thinking about the literature around crisis response and leadership. And of course, we've been talking about COVID a a bit during this session. Uh, Psychologists have been really speaking to organizations more frequently recently about how leaders can manage and lead during a crisis. And I just want to recognize that working in this industry doesn't necessarily mean you're under constant crisis, crises. Uh, but I, as I hear you talk, um, I'm reminded of some elements that are recommended, uh, the four C's. They are, uh, they are related to communication and how um, we can build trusting, meaningful relationships with the people that we work with. Leaders in particular um, are asked to use candidness, clarity, competence, and compassion in the way that they communicate with their teams. Mm -hmm. So candidness, of course, meaning um, you're pretty upfront and you're authentic with how you share things. You're planful. You are honest about the deadlines and maybe even the limitations within signing, you know, related to signing on to this project. Clarity means just being as um, as clear, sometimes concise, and just straightforward with with the work, especially around delegation and feedback. Uh, competence is so important. It means that um, you're sending signals that you know what you're talking about. You have the knowledge to have that position mm-hmm. and to be, you know, um, able to cultivate uh, a level of uh, accountability. And compassion is so important because it is how we show care and concern. We know that the work is important and we also know everyone's lives uh, include other external stressors and experiences that we may not even know about. And so whether it's that 
professional who's dealing with a visa or have family overseas or is experiencing a lot of family stress during this time, we should acknowledge that um, this, while we might share a focus, that everybody might have a different sense of stress and a different experience around stress. But what matters to us is how we're doing this together and how we're creating a very trusting relationship. And, you know, Chris, I appreciate that you mentioned after the project, there sometimes, in addition to celebrating uh, achievement, we may be working together again. And so it's so crucial uh, to to develop that initial trust. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, yeah, it's almost like it'd be great to really spend time and go through each one of those. The, um, the one thing you mentioned with deadlines too, and that element of trust, um, because, you know, with, with deadlines, you'll have deadlines and then sometimes you'll have a bit of padding with it, you know, just in case things don't go right. But I try to be as honest about deadlines as I can from what I know. I mean, maybe I don't have the full deadline, but that's one thing that can work against trust of artists is if they're pushing themselves really hard to hit this deadline and then they find out, oh, there's actually another three weeks that, you know, that can take a, a large toll. And if they go to another three weeks and then there's another two weeks, you know, that and then they get to a point, well, can I trust what has, you know, been told for me? Because I really went all out for this one thing. And then the the goalpost just moved a bit bit further. So it's something that we can look at with scheduling and being honest with the artists, like, hey, we this is the deadline we've been told. There may be some possibly times we need to hit this because maybe that time doesn't exist beyond it, but this is the information we have so that they don't feel that, that you've betrayed that trust asking them to do that. Yeah, I think that, that could be a, a big one. Um, yeah, and I was trying to think of the other C's that you had in there. Compassion as well, which is which is important. Um, it's um, understanding that some things that they're being asked to do is really hard. There's, it's some of the things have never actually been done before. You know, that if you're doing something that's really first time development, um, to say, when is this going to be done? It's like, no one has ever done this before. <laughs> it's kind of hard for me to know when, um, we've just written this software or we've done, just done these things. And for all of us to understand that there's an element of that where it's, it's, we're breaking ground with, with things. So, um, if an artist gives a date or a programmer or a developer gives a date, that's their best guess. And we need to take that into a, into account. Um, that could be part of it. What was the first C again? I forgot what the first C was. Uh, I said clarity. Yeah, we did clarity. Co yeah. Competence, Cabin. candidness. Yeah, candidness. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, another thing um, we, we should, we should uh, talk a little bit more about is uh, external pressures. A lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, professionals in our industry literally move around the world to uh to do what 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 they love to to work on these movies be it in animation or in visual effects but uh when you're attached to a work permit uh this work permit has an expiry date and this expiry date might put another set of pressure on you and actually not even only on you but also maybe on your spouse who is sponsored through you so um how how can we deal with those external forms of pressure yeah, that's a that's a it's a really tricky one because it feels like that's so much outside of their 
control. You know, they've done everything they can do to establish this, but if a project falls through or if there's, you know, and it's project to project. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not sure <laughs> if anyone else has any thoughts on that. Sure. So when, when I think about that as well, I think it's, it's important to at least to, to name what's happening and to be aware that these, these other pressures can have a major impact upon us. So we know that really for risk of burnout, but really all for mental health disorders in general, those things really do put you at higher risk. So having, let's say, we know that biologically, let's say for depression, you may be more predisposed to depression if you have a family history, if you've had depression in the past. But things like the social stressors, so being in a new place where you have no social network, having the stress of, you know, is my visa going to expire? Will it not be, will my work permit not be renewed? Um, let's say in times of COVID, having a sick family member, you know, across seas that you can't just easily pick up and go visit if you need to. Um, and not having that same social network also just puts added stress and makes you more vulnerable overall. Um, and also things that you mentioned before. So having, let's say, similar also psychological factors. So let's say knowing that you're the sort of person that whenever you're in a certain situation may react in a certain way or have sort of negative thoughts around it, or it may tend to bring out the worst in you when you're in this particular situation. Those things are being put in situations like that over and over again without being able to to find a way to really to change that to those those maladaptive patterns. Um, can also be very stressful. So I think being aware of that, so saying, you know what, I'm I'm in a much I'm in a very stressful situation. I've you know left my whole family and friends. I've come across. I, I now I'm working in a very stressful environment without my usual network, without the sense of security. Let's say of knowing how long I may be here for. And this is true of, of this industry, but in many other industries too, where people are working on work visas all across the world as well too. Um, so being aware of the fact that you know what maybe I I may have more difficulty than you know had I just stayed home for this sort of job but where it may not be available so to, to give yourself permission to at least be aware that you're in a more stressful environment than you would have been otherwise and to really ask to ask for help if you need it so to reach out to to colleagues to friends to family back home if you can to tell them that that you're struggling with it too and if it does get to the point where you've noticed. A real change in, in who you are, you know, in, in the way that you actually function so that you're no longer productive at work, you're different with your family and friends, you're not actually enjoying it, um, or you're just so stressed all the time that you can't, you can't sleep at all, you're constantly ruminating and just thinking about negative things, um, or if you're having very dark thoughts too. So in, in cases like that, then to really go seek a, a mental health provider, to go see a psychologist, a psychiatrist, um, which also I recognize could be a barrier of not necessarily even knowing the system where you move to. So I think having some of those resources as well and knowing in this new country, if I need the help, how do I access it um, should be one of the things that that is really top priority when you're coming to a new place as well. I also think, honestly, for the, if the managers and supervisors, too, that being at least aware of that can can be very helpful, especially yeah. to have made there may be other people on the team who have had a similar experience of. You know, I think sometimes this, this sort of mentorship happens without even really sort of take someone under your wing. Oh, yes, when I came here, let me help you with some of the paperwork or let me get you hooked up with this. And, you know, there's a lot of online groups for these sort of things. But to, to make sure that it's actually done for every new person coming in, to make sure that they have some sense of support as well, too, and can at least speak to someone maybe who went through a similar situation can also be very helpful. Yeah, yeah you speak about the, um, yeah, the managers and, you know, and producers and support. Um, yeah, I think it's... A, a, yeah, I think that's right. Just just recognizing that these crew are very far from their family. Like you said, you know, the social network, um, not having the grandparents there to help with the kids, um, dealing with elder care, um, and even the whole time zone. Um, you know, I was dealing with a lot of elder care and um, 
you know, Alzheimer's with my dad and, and different issues. And because of the time difference between New Zealand and Washington, D.C., I'm dealing with texts and calls at maybe at two in the morning, three in the morning, different, you know, different times. So the, the whole global, you know, being away from your family, but also being in such a very different time zone that you may have crew that are dealing with different things at all hours, you know, interrupting that vital sleep and, and all those things that we talked about before. Um, and I also said with, with families and kids not having the same kind of support system that you would probably have. So, um, and that can put added stress on their, their spouse or their partner um, at that same time. So trying to recognize that. And, and how many crew members are actually going through the same thing? Like we don't talk about it enough at work, but then when you do talk about it, everyone's nodding their head, you know, that, that so many people are, are dealing with those same type of issues, but just um, the conversations just don't get there enough, I think. A yeah. part of this too sounds like um, a reframing of our social support. If we have mm -hmm. very limited or disconnected um, relationships, we may maybe we used to rely or find support from um, family members. Um, I know that actually for many of the projects you've worked on, when I've heard about, in particular the crew, I know with Weta you may not have as much interaction, but with the crew, especially for those who are relocating for a couple of years, they form a new family. And that is essentially how they find support during this time. Um, and I wonder if that also lends itself to creating some protective factors as mm. they're dealing with some of the losses and, and some of the um, lack of support that they, they may have just by virtue of, of getting into the work or, or signing on to a project. So when I hear stories about that, I often find that to be um, uh, almost an organic way that uh, professionals uh, resolve or, or respond to, uh, to these stressors that can be very healthy. And the, the reason I'm even bringing this up is that there may be professionals who feel like, no, 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 it's separate. My family support, my social support is separate from my professional identity. Um, mm -hmm. And and I would offer up that I know a lot of professionals who found that like, no, they, they have sort of a second family and, and they feel quite supported in that social environment. Mm -hmm. And is part of that second family sometimes just trying to find a community that's completely outside of your work. Cause I know there's this thing where it's like, I see these guys all day. <laughs> I'd really like to have some different people that talk about different things that it doesn't go into the work conversation. Cause that's one of the things that you really see where it starts to go into the work conversation. You feel like, okay, I didn't really get that break. So have you found that it's like people that trying to build that support system is to try and actively get it from a different community? It could be. And, and when I think mm -hmm. about the cast and crew and, and some of the stories that, uh, that folks share, to me, it sounds as though they acknowledge they're having a very unique shared experience that even mm -hmm. people in their family couldn't relate to, wouldn't understand. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and that kind of brings in this, um, this camaraderie, right? Uh, that no one else, especially for projects, that you're working on in New Zealand, like who else could say that they've had those experiences? And even though it has its um, moments of difficulty and challenge, that getting through that together does actually build resilience and can be mm -hmm. a form 
of um, of uh, protective uh, yeah. support during that time. Yeah. Yeah, I think with that that question, Philip, because you um, you've probably worked with different artists that have been on short term or longer term um, contract. And do you find with those artists that there's a resistance to trying to build that community because they don't know how long they've been there? Like where I grew up around Washington, D.C., we had a lot of military families where um, families would come in and come and go. And, and sometimes the the kids would, knowing that they may have to leave pretty soon, may or may not build those kind of friendships, thinking that it might end soon. Do you find with the different contractors that um, you think there might be some resistance to building that community because of not knowing if they'll be there long term? Or do you find that people do actually are able to do it? I guess it's a difficult question. It, it very much depends on, on the mindset of this, the, the single person going into it. Uh, mm -hmm. Most people I've interacted with or joined my team, I always try to make them part of the team, part of the family, part of part of the social circle I'm in just to to give them a place to be, uh, to give them a social circle. But I also know not everyone uh, works like I do. Um, so it's it's I think I think it's it's something people need to look out for. It's it, it's so important to have a social circle which with within reach. I think what you're what you're both highlighting is just the importance that that people are also people are very different. That some people may want to be very close to their colleagues. Other people may feel actually I would prefer to be part of someone from the same cultural background as me. Let's say when I'm in a new country, I may or the same religious background, I may feel more connected to them. Um, or other people say I would prefer to root to let's say to bond over a shared hobby. So we, I'm going to join a running group or a biking group sometime, something out of work. But to to really just recognize that any of any social network that you can build is actually very protective and very helpful. So it actually helps build up our resilience as well. So if there are additional stressors at work, that actually gives you something to fall back on. That you have sort of a softer cushion no matter what comes your way. You feel like there's a part of yourself that is still well supported. And it's, it's also, it acts as a part of yourself that is not necessarily there at work. When at work, you, you may be in work mode and just trying to meet deadlines and not actually, your, your, sort of your true personality and the way that you are in a, in a more relaxed sense may not be coming out. So to at least have some people where you feel like you could be a bit more relaxed and more of yourself and just and just kick back a little bit, I think is, is even more necessary when you're sort of transplanted to, to a new country where everything is brand new and everything has to be, every every small thing could be an additional stressor then of you know finding a place to live, figuring out where's my usual grocery store, where you know just the, the basics of things take a little bit of time also to, to get used to. So finding anywhere, honestly, even if it's like for, for online communities, I think that we've seen also more recently that people are, are connecting more overseas with different people as well, to have any sort of safe place to fall back on. And I think this is something that we can prepare beforehand as well, right? Um, when I do goal setting with high performers, I always get them to reflect on their support network. So who is currently in their support network? What type of support do they provide? What other type of support do they need? Um, what resources are out there that they might have to go check out? So all this reflection can happen before you know you move to another country or city. Um, so and doing that will help you will help you set set yourself up for for success right oh i was just uh, the other thing i was just thinking about as well is um but is there also as you know we talked about groups bonding on a project you know going through what we call it being in the trenches and stuff together is there also some negative things we have to watch out for as well which is the 
oh, I've done this many hours and I've done this many hours in this, this little badge of honor because I've, you know, that whether it's obviously stated or not, that kind of one upping of, of how much you've committed, especially when it comes to hours, um, is that something we have to watch out for as well? Absolutely. That toxicity is contagious in very mm. negative ways. And uh, again, we look to uh, the leaders. So in addition to formal managers, also people in the community who uh, have a voice and have an impact uh, that can be positive and that can protect people uh, against these, these toxic cultural values that sometimes I, I think can be created uh, because of burnout. When we're burnt out, we get resentful. We feel that things are inequitable. We we just sort of simmer in, in negative feelings and uh, that can drive some of these, um, some of these more damaging, harmful ideas that can permeate a community. Um, so that's certainly something that is so important to to catch and and to not just identify but also try to uh, intervene around um in particular to uh to speak up and to say mm -hmm. you know uh to use i statements i believe that comment was harmful or uh you know can can we talk about what what that feedback meant a little bit more um but chris the the very structure that you mentioned the spatial element the communication and relational elements that you're building those are so important as, as far as they can um, be the pathways to conversation mm -hmm. when those things do come up yeah and and is it worth spending a little bit of time talking about what burnout actually means because we use that term a lot and i've seen different checklists where i've been like oh yeah i've got got some of those um is there a good um i mean we, we kind of know what it is but is there anything you know like a not a definitive list but things that can help guide people to see if they're burned out or on their way there are certainly online checklists there's a group called the headington institute that actually has like okay. a quiz that you can take in five minutes it's a burnout yeah. questionnaire i highly recommend it it's uh developed by uh, um, a nonprofit organization. Uh, but more simply, um, how I talk about burnout uh, really relates to the difference between other experiences that people may be having. For instance, you know, we, we, we've been talking about stress. So um, how burnout looks different is that burnout actually can deteriorate the sense of self and the uh, perspective that you have. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, you know, I was talking to a professional, a very young professional who told me, um, I feel like I'm losing my sense of self. Like, I feel like I don't know who I am anymore. And that allowed us to have a conversation around burnout. You know, maybe this mm -hmm. work that you're doing is impacting the way that you think, um, the way that you, you feel, and even how you're perceiving your sense of self, your personhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is burnout a, I guess we use the term, is that a stage? Like, I don't have any clinical terms, but people say they're fried and then people say they're burned out or people, is there, is it a, a like a certain, when you've reached a certain point and there's things 
stages before that that have terminology to them? So there are certain, there are a few different definitions of burnout as well, too. So I think it, it's, what's difficult about it is it's hard to, that there are different symptoms depending on, on who's actually defining it. But what mm-hmm. tends to really, um, the, the, the characteristics that go through all these definitions are really just feeling an overwhelming sense of just energy depletion. You're just exhausted and you can't really recharge. Um, feeling at work, like professionally, you're just not, you can't meet the same deadlines. You're just not feeling as, just you have a reduced professional efficacy. So it's just, you're not getting the work done at the same speed. It's taking you much longer to do something very little. And also people tend to withdraw. So feeling more of a distance from their job, they're sort of just less engaged, less enjoying it. Um, and then just overall, it sort of perpetuates it. There is a spectrum for this though. So you're asking, you know, what point is it? So some people can feel sort of the, the very early stages of it. Um, it could get to the point where people are then sort of checking out or feeling fried. Um, and at the more the more severe end of the spectrum, you could end up with a major depression as well, too. Mm-hmm. So depression is different in the sense of you'll, it will actually be affecting your mind and body to a greater extent and in bleeding into different areas of your life as well. So people can feel like they're not, well, people will not be sleeping anymore. Their appetite could be affected. Their energy overall, just feeling that they can't enjoy anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, they may also be feeling very feeling very guilty or negative or having a lot of negative thoughts about things in their life, and they could also be having dark negative thoughts or suicidal thoughts as well. Um, so that also could be part of the spectrum as well and something to watch out for. So with burnout, the idea is still that maybe certain things like doing exercise, uh, mindfulness meditation, and many different things, and just sort of recalibrating, setting new boundaries at work sometimes could be helpful. Um, but when it does get into more of a major depression, you may need more formalized treatment for it as well, too. And it's important to to be checking in with yourself, too, to know, am I at this point? And if you are there, to not be afraid to ask for help, because if you if you do, honestly, it could get, it could get much worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to make sure as well, if if you're noticing some of these signs in your colleagues as well, saying, you know, this is usually guy, like guy or girl who's totally, in, you know, they're, they're usually, they're super excited. They're mm-hmm. usually giving 110% at work. And then all of a sudden, they're, they're just acting. They don't seem as enthusiastic. Something mm-hmm. th- seems a little bit off. So to not be afraid to actually just ask, you know, what's what's going on? It's, it comes back to Dr. Drea's the, the C's as well, to come with compassion and say, okay, what's, you know, what's happening here? I've noticed a little bit of a change. Is there something going on? Is it, you know, is it at work? Is it at home? Is it some, just to know, is there anything that, that I could do that could actually be helpful too? Um, and which actually could make a major difference in terms of not letting it spiral to something that, that could be much more much more harmful over the long term. Yeah, I also wonder about that a bit, you know, how much of the cumulative effects that we think about, um, you know, that even though you have finished a project, have you completely finished it or how much of that may still stay with you from a, a previous stressful time? Um, I had a, there was a time once where I had, um, you know, really bad RSI and I was doing this this kind of biofeedback to look at where I was holding my muscles and things tense um, within a, within my chest and the, the, the guy who's doing the test was asking about the movie I was working on. And then he asked me about some of the previous movies I'd done. And I mentioned one and he said, look at the monitor. And I had, uh, tightened up, you know, and, um, just, it wasn't enough that I, like visually you couldn't see anything, but the, it was reading my muscles getting tighter. And that was from a project that was seven years prior, you know? So it was an interesting thing of like, you know, I didn't feel any different, but um, but this was reading some of, you know, things are tightening up. My heart rate had gone up a little bit. There was just a little bit. So it, that was part of my question is like, you know, is some of this stuff cumulative? Is it, you know, just because you finished um, 
a project, you know, or you finish a, a stressful time, does some of that stay with you? And what could you do to, you know, kind of relieve some of that? I think it's so important to actually name that with our colleagues and with one another that this is uh, not a one-time thing. And I think a lot of professionals will say to themselves, I, I'll just lose one night of sleep or I'll, you know, just push myself so hard for this one project and then I'll recover, I'll be fine. But the truth is uh, you can't get that sleep back. There, there is no uh, catching up on REM sleep. Uh, there, there's no, it's a fallacy that we can uh, recover or bounce back neatly, quickly, you know, uh, with ease. In fact, this type of burnout is cumulative and it compounds, it adds uh, each time we have this experience of exhaustion, it, it does uh, have a longstanding long-term effect on our health as well as our mental health. And I think that's so important to name. I thought it was interesting that you'd mentioned the, yes, I, I thought it was interesting that you'd mentioned that the feedback in your body as well because I, what I was going to say is that the, the body really keeps the score in this that we may not even be cognizant sometimes of what's going on but your your body does internalize it in a certain way and this is also in my line of work I see a lot of people who eventually develop some other health effects too that are also impacted by anxiety and stress so it sort of goes both ways that over time prolonged stress can affect the immune system that you're more susceptible to infections um, people just notice that they tend to get colds more easily when they have a sort of prolonged stress that in terms of cardiovascular health, it's also impacted. Um, people are more susceptible to asthma, to diabetes. You also may just develop worse health behaviors as well, too, sort of eating less healthy, not exercising because of the prolonged stress, too, but the body itself changes. Mm -hmm. um, so to be aware, too, as Dr. Dre was saying, that it's not it's not the sort of thing you just sort of just shut on, shut off, or like, okay, I'm done with this project, it's over. There, there really is a cumulative effect over time, too. Um, and so even more important over time to recognize so what what are the ways to actually decrease your stress? What are the situations that tend to make you more stressed? How to prevent them if you can? And once you're in them, what tools can you actually use to decrease the stress? Yeah. And it, it's so important to notice when our, our body tenses up. And I think most of the time we don't, right? We get stressed <laughs> and our heart rate rises and all these things happen and our stress symptoms are, it's different for everybody. But if we're able to, to notice that happening, then we can, you know, use breathing strategies to actually decrease the heart rate and balance the nervous system and, and come back to the moment and refocus and, and reset our mind. Um, and that, again, that takes time and it's, it's a skill that needs to be practiced. But um, I think everyone should be just taking that moment to, to recenter when, when we're caught up in, in those emotions. And is there good, um, just kind of a short on time, is there good sources for that? Like trying to leave with some of, you know, recommendations to help with that. Is that, you know, is that meditation? Is that yoga? Is there certain websites to help with breathing? Like what could people um, take with them to, to learn more about it? Um, but meditation and meditation is great to, to learn how to be in control of the breath and use the breath as a very powerful tool. And I mean, breathing strategies could look different for everybody, but a basic one is, um, you know, five inhale, five exhale, or I like to use six to seven, which might be hard for some people, but it's a six second inhale, two second pause, seven second exhale. And you'll notice when your heart rate is really high, it's going to be so hard <laughs> to do that. But with practice, it becomes easier. And what's important is that is the exhale is, is longer or 
uh, same ratio as the the inhale because that's what's helping us um, kind of balance out so you can play with it and kind of figure out what's what's best for you mm-hmm. um, but most most people seem to like the five in five out or box breathing which is four in four pause four out four pause um, and you know sometimes you might need to take 10 of those breaths and then other maybe you'll get really good at it and at one point you'll just need to take three so it's continuous practice and figuring out what works for you Wonderful. Uh, Camille, uh, can you please um, wrap us up? What did we learn today? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, first, thank you, Chris, for sharing your experiences and stories with us. I think we could all agree that it's so important for us to to speak up and share stories just to normalize the the struggles and challenges that we all face. Mm. Um, Just some key takeaways for listeners. Um, We spoke about a lot of perspectives and strategies uh, for managing pressure. Um, reflection, right? Reflection on our controllables, communication, our support network, our boundaries. Um, the idea of developing our self-awareness skills through journaling, meditation, um, talking with a therapist, talking with a colleague or anyone else. Um, Dr. Drea, you mentioned the HALT ac- acronym to check in with how we're feeling. And then the four C's to build um, trust within the team. Uh, we talked about learning how to reframe the situation to manage pressure. Um, Chris, you spoke about creating an environment um, that's supportive, right? And that allows for casual conversation. Um, We talked about scheduling time for habits that help cope with uh, pressures such as um, Dr. Melanie mentioned sleep, exercise. Uh, We spoke about downtime. So there are many resources out there. Um, Please ask for help if you need. And finally, I want to thank Philip and Dr. Melanie and Dr. Drea for your expertise and knowledge today. Thank you very much. I can just echo that. Uh, It was a very, very insightful conversation. Thank you, Chris, uh, Dr. Drea, Dr. Melanie, Camille, uh, and our our audience for being here. It's it's really great to be part of these conversations. And uh, please have a look out for our other chapters of the series. You find them on visualeffectsociety.com. You find them on vfxmontreal.com, on YouTube, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. Thank you very much. Goodbye.